from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, on the trail of the green swan, WeWork's new sustainability push, the two faces of the oil industry on climate change, and is car sharing actually an environmental benefit? We're going along for the ride this week on 350. It's April the 5th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her perch in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I have to ask you a question. Okay, you go is first. There, is there a collection of your puns available on Amazon? <laughs> and the Library of Congress is offered. No, 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 no. I, I, they're just riffs that, as you know, I do in, in under 20 seconds, free associating with whatever stores are running this week. Um, <laughs> is, yeah, but you can buy limerick collections. Why not yours? Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I, I, I just, <laughs> I like to keep them ephemeral and <clears throat> available only to a select audience of green biz listeners of our 350 podcast. So we'll keep it at that. And, um, See, you're uh, special out there in Listenerland. <laughs> yes. Listenerland. Yeah. Yep. So quickly changing the subject, uh, how has been your week? Superior. Okay. <laughs> Just a lot, doing a lot of different things, but it's one of those weeks where I move from project to project and get more excited about what I'm doing every moment. Isn't um, that every week? Yeah, it is kind of every week, but I've I've been uh, interviewing some candidates for a, an open position we have, and I was actually able to get out into New York City and uh, participate in a briefing at ING this week. Some, the big Dutch some, bank, yeah. Yep, yep, and and they have two two pretty terrific um, executives, Anne Van Riel and uh, Leon Winans, um, that that run their sustain, quote sustainability function. They and I say quote because they are very clear that their jobs are just jobs and that everything that, that the bank thinks about in terms of financing or, or new programs um, in lending is, is, yes, it includes sustainability, but that, that's just the course of business. So they, they're, they're doing some terrific work in, in doing that. And, and so they, they just were um, in, in New York doing a little bit of an update. So that, that's always wonderful. Yeah, when I can had, get out. We had Anne at um, mm. our Greenfin Summit at GreenBiz mm -hmm. 19 in February and uh, talking about uh, how they're thinking about financing um, all kinds of things, including the circular economy, which yeah. is uh, now a strategic national mm -hmm. imperative in in its uh, home country of the Netherlands. Yeah, right. And, but she's and in charge of North America. Yeah. She's, and she's and so they're bringing some of that here, Yeah, which is mm -hmm. pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, good. It's been a it's been a terrific week. I also have confirmed another speaker for circularity. So it's a good one. It's yeah, a good one. Great. <laughs> and we uh, just wrapped up today the nomination process for our thirty under thirty class of twenty nineteen, and we'll be uh, releasing those in a couple of months. So we've picked a few, sort of. We're starting to pick them now, mm -hmm. and it's uh, as always so so gratifying to see this great group of. Well, they're young people, they're under 30s, and uh, just the work they're doing around the world from from Ghana to 
to Vietnam, to India, to all over, of course, North America and Europe. And so that's coming out. And then you've been working on uh, emerging leaders. Actually, our, our, our wonderful colleague, Holly Seekin, is working on this. But emerging leaders, yes, is the scholarship program that we run for um, each of our conferences. We, we enable um, up to 10 students and, and people that are sort of fresh in their career um, who want to attend one of our events, but maybe don't have quite the budget. So we have been supporting um, all expense paid trips for, for them. And, and so we have the uh, nomination process open for Circularity 19 in Minneapolis, and, and we're accepting suggestions and applications for that as we speak. Yeah, so we'll give all expense paid trips to the Twin Cities um, for 10 under 30s. Uh, I think that's the rule as well. It's somewhere in the 20s to 30s for the emerging leaders, young professionals or students with a strong emphasis on diversity. One of the very expressed purposes of this emerging leaders program, which we've, this is probably our sixth or seventh conference that we've done this, uh, is to bring people who are not the typical audience at these events who don't often get a chance to be part of this. And what's cool about this is not just this, this amazing group of, of young talent that gets to come to the event, but we don't just plop them in the event. We get to sort of integrate them a little bit by bringing, having some meetups with some of the corporate sustainability people and some of the other professionals and a couple special events just for the emerging leaders so that they feel uh, not just uh, able to attend the meeting, but feel a part of it. So that's cool. I'm glad, uh, so glad that that continues to be uh, sort of normal now for us in all of our events. So that's coming up. But meanwhile, let's take a look back at the Week in Review. I want to start this week with a piece by one of my favorite, favorite people in the world of sustainability, John Elkington. Uh, based in London, uh, the really, in some ways, the father, grandfather, whatever figure uh, on sustainability. He actually started a firm called Sustainability in 1987. It just recently got sold to ERM. Um, and so uh, he's, and he's been such a great thought leader. He coined the term triple bottom line back in the day and a number of other things. And this time he's taking on, he's an editor-at-large uh, at GreenBiz now, and as well as his role at Volans, the consulting and think tank firm he runs in London. Now he's talking about green swans. Yes, green swans as opposed to black swans. Uh, that's that's the, the inspiration for his his column and essay, but black swans being sort of a, a very highly improbable, but yet incredibly impactful thing that happens and uh, in, in shocks a system, often a financial system. And I think that was the sense in, in which it's often used. But um, this concept is green swans. So, you know, looking at the positive and looking at the positive opportunities that our quest to fight climate change could have on uh, the, our future. So I, I love the concept of this because, well, first of all, I love swans. Who doesn't love swans, generally speaking? Any color. <laughs> of any color, yeah. 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 But um, I love the terminology because it just, ah, it's one of those positive terminologies. You know, these are going to be new mindsets or technologies or business models 
that are highly impactful and they're probably going to be surprised, um, but they're not going to be necessarily the negative implications that a black swan would would uh, have. And just I love the recasting of this concept. Yeah, he says green swans are positive market developments once deemed highly unlikely, if not actually impossible. And for most people, they arrive kind of out of the blue. Um, and if you think about some of the overnight successes that have taken 10 or 20 or even 30 years, renewable energy, electric cars are two, just two examples. But now we're seeing this with plastic and uh, sort of the new war on single-use plastics and plastics waste. Um, and a lot of these come from innovations, uh, as we saw with, with all kinds of clean technologies. Um, and as he said, you know, early on, a lot of green swan innovators and entrepreneurs are dismissed out of hand, very much like uh, the ugly ducking in that fairy tale. Um, and the critics and skeptics don't see what, uh, you know, they've been blind to. And, and sometimes these things do take on a sort of a surprise element, even though uh, they've, they've, they've been around for a while or they've been looked at askance and all of a sudden, their mainstream. So yeah, as you say, uh, this is a great positive spin uh, and a great way to look at some of these sort of expected surprises uh, that uh, those of us in the field can see, but those outside of it, you know, seem to come out of the blue. So great kudos to John Elkington for yet another great concept that will all help us frame what we're doing in some small but hopefully meaningful way. But in a big and meaningful way, uh, let's turn to our colleague Sarah Golden's piece this week on the relationship between the oil super majors and climate change. And, and this piece is a, a less happy piece, let's say, but it comes out of some research that, that came out from Influ Influence Map showing that the super major oil companies, and this is really taking on five of them, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Royal Dutch Shell, BP, and Total, the French uh, company, um, that they've invested millions to brand themselves as climate champions but and are doing some things around to actually back that up. But as she says, where does the talk stop and the action start? This is one of those dong, dong, dong kinds of stories <laughs> where, right? <laughs> you read done, it and yeah. you're like, yeah. So I think the point being, uh, we've heard plenty about the the things that these companies are trying to do with respect to their business models to help in the fight against climate change and you know then she's got a great laundry list of examples of how each company is trying to respond to this uh, for example just one one thing shell is just buying all sorts of advanced energy companies uh, they've, they've got first utility they bought it a new motion, which is a Dutch car charging operator, Sonen, right? So the company uh, out of Germany that, that does these energy storage technologies. So she's got a great list of the investments that each of these companies are making, the five, the five big ones in particular, in addressing climate change. But the point being um, that this sort of caveat is that if you look at, at the money that these companies are spending, only... Three percent, three of all the capex that these these companies are putting towards um, the world at large are dedicated to low carbon technologies. So, 
yes, they're doing these things, but it's significant, you know, a significant portion of their money is still focused on supporting and um, perpetuating models that are anti-low carbon. Yeah. And, and the poster yeah. child for that uh, was BP back when it had uh, adopted this uh, Beyond Petroleum moniker and uh, played that up quite a bit in, in terms of advertising and yet never had more than a fraction of 1% of its revenue come from Beyond Petroleum, Beyond Oil and Gas, basically. And um, they got let's just say way far ahead of their skis. And then, of course, when stuff happened, as it did with them in the in the Gulf, they don't have a lot of, uh, the, I think, reputational benefits to fall back on because they're, you know, all of a sudden shown for what they are. But beyond that, Sarah's story syncs up with the piece that I wrote, uh, I guess, a week before about uh, also re referencing this uh, influence map research that's the basis for the numbers that you were giving us, Heather, looking at this disparity between what companies are doing and what their actual policy influence is. In other words, there are a lot of companies, not just the oil companies, that are talking a good game or doing some uh, innovative or progressive or proactive measures around low carbon economy or uh, addressing climate or climate footprints at the same time that they either are directly or indirectly through trade associations lobbying for policies that would in effect uh, fly in the face of, of the work that, that hinder progress on climate change and uh, that's a part of what this uh, Sarah's piece is as well the, that there's you know really and this is not new uh, this has been gone for a long long time but now we're seeing it a little bit clearer thanks to some research that oil companies are trying to put on a, a green face and are actually doing some things. But as you note, it's small change. And meanwhile, they continue to try and grow their, their hydrocarbon business and uh, around the world as that demand continues to expand. You know, I do want to say, in fairness, just one thing that happened this week. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, Shell did make a a commitment to leave one of the, the major um, lobbying groups focused on the fossil fuels industry. They are next year going to leave the American fuel and petrochemical manufacturers lobby, um, yep. um, citing material misalignment. So that did happen this week. That's positive. So I, I'm, I'm going to leave it on a positive note, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's progress. And <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking yeah. of progress, let's turn to a story that you did, Heather about Cliff Bar and the new fund that they're, that they're developing to help farmers invest in resilience. This is one of those great examples of a company that talks about wanting to help its supply chain get more resilient, get more invested in the future of low carbon uh, economy rather than sort of the, the same old, same old. And they're actually putting money behind it. So this fund, it's called the Cliff um, Ag Fund, is specifically focused on helping farmers make investments um, in, I mean, generally speaking, over time, it will be things like regenerative agriculture, um, could even be just technologies to help protect harvested grain and so forth. But the first tranche uh, of money, about $10 million between Cliff Bar and some of its partners, will be focused on helping organic farmers finance uh, clean energy. So they're encouraging these farmers to put wind turbines on their property. They've, they've gone out and found a, a company called United Wind, which has a, a leasing program. 
and uh, they're connecting the that company with their farmers um, specifically the farmers are involved with uh, a couple of their suppliers so um, cliff bar buys from two companies grain millers and purists so um, sets of suppliers from their own supply chain and beyond that those those companies have farmers in each of their their networks that that, that are going to have the benefit of this so it's you know i just i like this because again you, you hear a lot of companies talk about doing this sort of thing, but then the money's not there. And I think you and I both know that many of these organizations would love to get involved with these sorts of things, but they don't have necessarily the money, They, the, especially farmers. I mean, they're, they're being hammered from all sides. I think someone told me last week that bankruptcies in Nebraska among farmers generally are up 17% this year. And I was just I just floored by that number. And that, by the way, that came from a farmer <laughs> I was talking to who's very interested in regenerative agriculture and water conservation and so forth. But, you know, his his point being that a lot of times um, organizations want to do the right thing, if you will, the quote, right thing, end quote, but don't have the, the wherewithal and the extent to which the, the, the larger companies Cliff Bar isn't huge, but they're they're you know they're they're using their influence to help influence the policy of their supply chain. Yeah, and and the other part of this that we want to make sure we note that this is not philanthropy; it's an investment, and so there's money to be made here. At the same time that uh, these suppliers help Cliff Bar with its own commitment that it calls fifty fifty, which is. Um, uh, they're helping their companies that manufacture baked Cliff Bar products. They want to get at least 50 partners committed to sourcing at least 50% of their power used uh, in those processes from clean re and renewable sources. And they've got 44 so far. So, uh, yeah, that, that's actually that's a different program. Oh, it uh, is. Yeah, okay. it's a slightly different program. So if you think about it, you've got in, in the Cliff Bar supply chain, you've got the farmers, right? The, the people that are actually growing the. The, the raw ingredients and so forth. Then you've got all of the bakers and suppliers and packaging and, and so forth companies that are involved. And that 50-50 program is focused on them. And yes, they've been that that's a, it's just it's a great another great example of how Cliff Bar is doing this. This particular ag fund is specifically focused on farmers. Um, and and they went out and identified a couple of, of you know ingredient suppliers and said, okay, we're gonna start with your farmers. Um, Let's try this out. So yeah, wonderful, wonderful work. Hi, this is Katie Farrenbacher, senior writer covering transportation for GreenBiz, and I recently chatted with the CEO and co-founder of Blah Blah Car, Nicholas Brousson. If you don't know Blah Blah Car, then you're probably an American. 70 million riders and drivers in 22 countries across Europe and South America use the company's carpooling and bus service for traveling and commuting. Nicholas and his team launched the service back in 2006 after Al Gore's movie Inconvenient Truth came out, and the motivation was to try to help solve the problem of largely empty and inefficient cars running between and within cities. So is Blah Blah Car actually solving this problem? According to a new report commissioned by the company, the answer is yes. This is Nicholas on the results of the report. So what we wanted to do was um, measure the real impact uh, carpooling or long-distance carpooling uh, has on the environment. Um, so obviously the intuition was it's a positive thing. 
but we never actually went as far as like doing like a proper study of uh, what's the real impact. Like how many people do we take off cars? How many people do we, well, essentially make travel when they would not have traveled, which is good from a social point of view, but you know, that's good in a way from um, an environment point of view. Uh, so that's the, the genesis of that, uh, of that report. Um, and, and the results are you know, very, very good. So essentially the, the results show that um, in the course of, of 2018, um, we saved over 1.6 million tons of CO2 uh, with with Black Um And we've done all kinds of, uh, of study and, and analysis around that. Uh, and I guess it shows that you know, the, the power of shared mobility uh, and, and the fact that you know, if we keep uh, this evolution toward moving from private cars being used, um, you know, three-quarter empty, to shared cars, uh, we can have actually a pretty big impact on, uh, on, on global warming in the long term. Nicholas and I chatted about the study on the morning that the ride-hailing company Lyft first started trading on the NASDAQ. In a former life, Lyft was actually a carpooling service called Zimride that never took off. I asked Nicholas why he thinks a carpooling service can work across Europe and Latin America, but not in the U.S., and this is what he had to say. Yeah, it's very interesting because I, uh, I, I remember I met uh, John and Logan, um, I think it was back in 2010 or maybe 2011, um, when Lyft was not yet Lyft, when Lyft was Zimride, uh, and Zimride was pretty much the same vision uh, as what Beda Car is today. So it was this long-distance carpooling, uh, really unlocking anti-seating cars, um, and they decided to pivot uh, to Lyft, and well, the rest is history, and uh, today is, uh, is a big day for Lyft as they, they just IPO'd, and very successfully. Um, what uh, what came out of these discussions was the fact that in the U.S. the the challenge was mostly the first mile and last mile um, uh, that you know, in Europe tends to be solved by public transport. So so if a driver wants to go from Paris to Brussels, um, your passengers could easily get to any point in Paris to get into the car, and if they get dropped off at any point in Brussels, they can easily get to the destination using tram, metro, uh, you name it. Uh, in most cities in the U.S., actually, the, the, the lack of density or quality of public transport uh, makes the first mile and last mile very complex and, and forces the, uh, the driver to almost like taxi around the city to pick up and drop off passengers, which was not very appealing for drivers. Um, so that, that was one of the main reasons, actually, um, long-distance carpooling never took off in the U.S., and to this day, interestingly, there is no bad car in the U.S., right? So, so ride hailing is very, very strong in the U.S., uh, but this concept of um, online long-distance carpooling has not yet um, taken off. Uh, we haven't tried, um, but no one else has taken the market, which is probably a strong sign that it's not so easy in the U.S. Last week, one of the people who came through the Green Biz office was an old friend of ours, Lindsay Baker, who's the head of sustainability and well-being at We Company, which is also better known for its main brand, WeWork. Great to have you here, Lindsay. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So WeWork is growing so fast. I imagine that would give you a pretty good opportunity to leverage what you're doing in the name of sustainability. How does that work? There's basically three things. One is you're buying enough stuff 
that you can really ask for the things that you want. And so when the case of our supply chain, construction materials, those kinds of things, we're now able to talk to some of our, our biggest suppliers and we're one of their biggest clients. And so they want to make sure they know what we want. And if we want healthy materials and we want low carbon materials and we want circularity, they're interested in that. Uh, and they know that we will be able to provide that sort of ongoing business for them if they want to try something interesting. So that part is cool. I think the next big thing that's exciting is that we have this opportunity to grow a community. We have a ton of space. We have a ton of members. I think we're almost to a half a million members today. So it's getting to the point where half a million people in a hundred cities around the world are coming into our space every day, variety of different perspectives, et cetera. And we have this opportunity and really part of our business is to bring people together around, you know, issues, things that they want to talk about, have town halls and events in our spaces. So we can really engage that as a way of building awareness around issues like climate change. So that part also is exciting is that you have this incredible scale of just um, a community that you can use for building awareness and, and, and taking action. And then I think it's also just getting to be a time where people know that we're a company that is big, <laughs> that we therefore are showing up in all the places that big companies need to show up to speak about this issue. Uh, and, and that gives us an enormous amount of responsibility. So we're spending a lot of our time right now just making sure internally we all agree about what the future is that we want to see in this world so that we can get out there and use our voice to have the impact we can have. Can you tell us a little bit about that future? Is, is there some consensus on that yet? Yeah, actually, surprisingly, and I hate to say it because I know this can be really hard for other big companies, but um, we are definitely a company that believes in tackling climate change, that it is a major issue that is, you know, in many ways, the issue of our time. Uh, we really believe in the community being a part of that. So in other words, it's a, it, we, we want to provide as many opportunities for as many people to get involved in the movement as possible, and we want to bring people up in that. So in a sense, sort of a decentralized and everyone is needed to solve the problem type of model, not to say that we don't take our own responsibility, but that we really want to help strengthen the movement. I think we're pretty we're pretty results-driven, pretty impact-driven, so we're trying not to focus too much on the, the labels or the certifications or the, you know, the reports and those kinds of things, but really think how do we measure whether this company is having a positive impact on the world, really, uh, you know, in a serious way, where are our gaps, where is the room for improvement, and how do we be honest about that in the world? So I think that combination of really wanting to be honest, taking these issues seriously and knowing that a lot needs to get done, that those are things we have a ton of agreement about. So what's on your wish list? Things, problems you're trying to solve, things you're looking for, and I, I realize this is a be careful what you wish for kind of question, but w what's on your sustainability wish list? Oh, that's a hard one. I guess a big part of it is um, I wish for uh, more plain English to be spoken when it comes to issues, especially around things like corporate renewable energy procurement. I mean, that in of itself is a term that is going to be like a snooze for a lot of people, you know? What we're really talking about is 100% clean energy. I, I know the terms are have their own, you know, wonkishness and precision that's important, but people don't even really understand these terms. And for a company like WeWork, 
we're really trying to get started on an aggressive path that looks a little bit like the companies that have come before us, Google and Salesforce and some of these wonderful companies that have done hard work. Um, but when we learn about how much expertise and how many lawyers you have to hire and all of these things, it's daunting and the terminology is daunting. And, um, and I think, you know, we are doing our best. We're hiring a great team. We're, we're, there are some serious, professional, amazing people joining. Um, but we haven't done this before. And I think that should be okay to be able to say, like, hey, we're, we're trying really hard, but we're, we're new. No virtual power purchase agreement, anybody? <laughs> exactly. Let's cut down the acronym so we can get to work. <laughs> yeah. So when you and I talk again in, let's say, a couple of years, because you're six, eight months into this job now, or I think you're the first uh, sustainability lead for WeWork, what's the conversation you want to be able to have about where WeWork has gone or, or, or what, how the vision has grown? Oh, I have so many aspirations, but I really feel like the big one is to show that you can move fast, that you can establish a great program that is already having a positive impact on communities and the environment, and that you can get that up and running in a short period of time. Let's dispel the myth that it's like, oh, you got to sit around and have a long strategy plan and six months of really figuring out who your stakeholders are. I would love to be able to say that our story was one of, you know, of really moving fast and Maybe we don't get absolutely everything right along the way, but we can say that we use our time well for the challenge at hand. Move fast and fix things. I like that. <laughs> Lindsay Baker is the head of sustainability and well-being at WeWork. Thanks so much for coming by, Lindsay. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organizations, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. And you can also check out our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. And as I always like to remind you, don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Verge Weekly comes out on Wednesdays, and my Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. And check out the other three, too, on transportation and mobility, clean energy, and the circular economy. Heather and I will be back next week, per usual. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. 